she was the first one to discover that it was primarily uh, the higher level of calpostatin in Bosindicus cattle that makes them less tender. Wow. Now, they also generally have less marbling, but the primary factor was the higher levels of calpostatin. Welcome to Meats Pad, a platform dedicated to sharing breakthrough knowledge that is accessible to the meats industry. These discussions help foster and improve communication and knowledge dissemination within the meat science community. This podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the Niche Meat Processor Assistance Network, the National Provisioner, Ultrasource, the new standard for innovation, Dry Age Pro makes dry aging in-house flexible, safe, and affordable. The mission of USMEF is to increase the value and profitability of the U.S. beef, pork, and lamb industries by enhancing demand for their products and export markets through a dynamic partnership of all stakeholders. Hello, me folks. Welcome back to the Meatspot Podcast. My name is Francisco Nahara. I'm your host today. We are honored to have a legend in the meat science world on our podcast today. We have Dr. Michael Dagman. He's a professor emeritus in meat science at Kansas State University. He has been the chair of the Reciprocal Meat Conference. He's also been a president of the American Meat Science Association. I had the pleasure to meet Dr. Dagman when I first came to K-State five years ago. And uh, it's someone that I look up to and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Please tell us about yourself and we can start this conversation. I grew up in southeast Kansas, a town called Fort Scott. Uh, real close to the Missouri border. And uh, no one in my family had gone to college until I did. And so uh, after one and a half years of community college, I transferred to K-State and uh, majored in animal sciences and industry, just called animal husbandry at that time. Okay. And I uh, was encouraged to go out for the meat judging team. And uh, Dr. Don Croft was coach of the meat judging team. And uh, that's where I developed my interest in pursuing uh, graduate work in meat science. I was also on the livestock judging team the following year. And uh, our team won the American Royal and was reserve national champion at the international contest. And then I, trans- I went to Michigan State University to pursue my master's degree. And I helped coach the livestock judging team there one year and the meat judging team another year. And uh, I, I didn't necessarily like <laughs> the state of Michigan. And, you know, I was still single. And uh, so I decided to transfer back to Kansas State University where I worked on my PhD degree. And I received that in uh, August of 1970. Okay. And uh, a couple of months before that, Dr. Don Good was head of the Animal Sciences and Industry Department. And he was my livestock judging team coach. And he called me in his office and said that the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center at Clay Center, Nebraska, was just getting started. And uh, they were looking for a faculty member at some university somewhere in the Midwest 
to cooperate with them on what was called the germplasm evaluation project. Basically, it was a breed comparison study. And so I cooperated with them for about 18 years on this uh, study. And uh, I think it's probably the most extensive study in the world. Not, not, to, not to my credit, but I was involved with it, okay? We, we, we followed cattle into a packing plant and then brought the carcasses back to Kansas State University. And we fabricated them into closely trimmed boneless meat. And then we also retrieved steaks, ribeye steaks and conducted uh, shear force evaluations and trained sensory panel evaluations on those. So I think over that period of time, uh, there was something like uh, close to 8,000 head of cattle that were evaluated for composition, you know, closely trimmed meat, fat, and bone, and uh, Warner Brasher Shearforce and train panel, uh, sensor panel evaluation. So I think it still stands as one of the uh, framework studies that I know has been used, you know, around the world, whether they were interested in carcass composition or whether they were interested in tenderness or meat quality and so on. And so uh, that uh, study, I think, was a major contribution. And then <clears throat> I, I've been involved in various kinds of studies. Uh, in addition to that, most of them were with cattle. And most of them involved something about live animal production, uh, management systems, or breed comparisons, and then follow through uh, in carcass composition, meat quality, tenderness, sensory panel evaluation, and so forth. And uh, then uh, if I'm going too fast, if you want to stop me and interject no. questions or comments. Oh, you you, you're, it's perfect. It's perfect. I think the the first question on on telling telling a little bit about yourself. I think uh, you're a legend. A lot of people know you, but I think for younger generations that may know may know the name like about who Dr. Michael Dykeman is, but they might not know much about you. And I've been here at K State for five years, and I, I've seen you a lot of uh, uh, interacted with you and I think I, I'm very honored and and had this privilege to to have uh, such a legend meat scientist here in, in Manhattan with you and uh, Dr. Han. I also had the opportunity to maybe cross a couple of words with Dr. Croft when I got here. I guess one of the things that we can discuss you you told me you notify that you you're going to be a uh, the editor-in-chief for the new Meat Science Encyclopedia. Uh, could you please tell us a little bit about, about this? What, what does this entail? And Okay. Well, thank you for your compliment anyway, but uh, I appreciate that. But, you know, uh, quite a few years ago, probably it probably be about 15 to 18 years ago, I was involved with uh, a person from Denmark and then Carrick Devine from uh, New Zealand. 
and the three of us were co-editors of the first Encyclopedia of Meat Sciences. And then after about 10 years, then uh, Elsevier is the company that publishes the uh, encyclopedia. They thought it would be time for a revision. And so Carrick Devine and I were co-editors-in-chief of the second edition of the Encyclopedia of Meat Sciences. And then after about eight or nine years, it was decided that there needed to be an update and Carrick Devine was not interested in continuing that. He's a little bit older than me. And so they asked me if I would consider being editor in chief. And so that's uh, what I'm doing now. Uh, we have, uh, I, I, I contacted and arranged for 10 section editors. And uh, then I'm going to be one section editor by myself. <laughs> and uh, then uh, those section editors uh, are to uh, make a list of topics that they want to, they think should be included. And, uh, and then I would review those and make sure there's no conflicts or overlap, you know, with other sections and so on. And uh, they are supposed to submit their, their final list of topics and speakers by the 1st of March, okay? And I've taken a little different approach uh, to uh, this third edition than in previous editions. Previously, we just had this random list of topics, you know, 220 or so topics. And then we, uh, we signed different people to be section editors in. I've kind of approached it to develop more of a, you might say a systems or a similar topics approach. I'm, I'm gonna focus on cattle and other smaller ruminant animals, you know, all the way from genetics and breeding to production management systems, to carcass composition, to meat quality, to uh, tenderness, to retail packaging and so on. Uh, for example, Joe Sobranic at Iowa State is gonna focus on comminuted or, you know, uh, finally made sausage products, you know? Right. And then uh, another person from Penn State's gonna focus on uh, uh, whole muscle cuts that are cured and processed, like cured hams, cured and smoked bacon, you know, things like that. And then we got someone else that's working on uh, the swine industry, all the way from breeds and genetics to production systems and so on. So that's kind of the approach that I've taken to make it a little bit more fit together a little bit better into kind of a system approach rather than just a book of random topics. Awesome. Um, now, I, I, I might share another study with you that I think is fairly noteworthy. And, and like I said, I've been involved in various studies that uh, involving production management systems, you know, and carcass composition and treating carcasses, you know, electrical stimulation and hot boning and so on, all the way out to sensory panel work, tenderness and so forth. But uh, there was a point where, you know, it was determined that Bosinicus or Brahma type cattle, their meat was less tender than most other breeds. 
And one of my graduate students, Georgiana Whipple, uh, she actually did the work at the Meat Animal Research Center. She went up there and I think she was up there about a year and a half, but she was the first one to discover that it was primarily uh, the higher level of calpostatin in Bos right. Indicus cattle that makes them less tender. Wow. Now they also generally have less marbling, but the primary factor was the higher levels of calpostatin. Wow. Okay. Would you please tell us, for those folks that they don't know what a calvastatin enzyme is, would you please tell us about that, please? Okay. Well, there are, there are basically two enzymes involved in muscle over time in the live animal, the calpanes and calpostatin. The calpanes cause muscle turnover. I mean, you know, when protein is deposited in muscle, it just doesn't stay there without changing. So there's turnover and the calpanes uh, allow for the, the breakdown of protein and so on to form new proteins. The calpostatin enzyme is an inhibitor or it, it blocks the work of calpanes, okay? And partly because the Brahma cattle in the climates in which they're produced, you know, hot, humid climates, apparently, in their evolution, they needed to have slower protein turnover. So they naturally had higher levels of calpostatin, see, to slow down and moderate the work of the calpanes. Okay. Then there are a few other enzymes that are, are involved probably in tenderness, but they're pretty, they have a pretty subtle effect relative to the calpanes and the calpostatins. Awesome. I think, uh, again, thank you. Thank you a lot for, for being here today with us. Um, so I guess my next question and, and from someone like, like yourself that, I mean, you started um, with all this research uh, back in 1970. Uh, so it's almost oh, five, 50 years of experience that you have. Would you please tell us a little bit about history of in the beef industry uh, how that has changed, um, and, and you can you can tell us in terms of the the beef system, the beef production system, from a more holistic standpoint about these fifty years. I mean, we have we have a lot of changes. We have more uh, branded programs like okay, yeah, thirty five Angus beef. Well, uh, obviously, uh, there's been dramatic changes in terms of knowledge known and uh, technology and so forth. And uh, one of those is in DNA, molecular technology and so on. But from a industry standpoint, yes, something like the Certified Angus Beef program, a branded program has stimulated the industry to focus more on um, production, management, breed, breeds of cattle involved and so on. and uh, producing a product that's very consistent. Now, I, I would have to say that, uh, well, I don't have to say it, but I, in, in the germplasm evaluation project that I talked about, you know, with the Meat Animal Research Center, when we did uh, all of these uh, sentry panel evaluations and Warner Brothers Surforce, we found that there was a, a fairly noticeable difference in 
the level of marbling in modest and moderate, which would be the upper two thirds of choice versus low choice. And actually that's where I think certified Angus beef got the idea to develop a, a specification that cattle had to have at least modest or moderate marbling to qualify for the program. Now certified Herefords beef also has a program. It's not, it has been as widely known as uh, the certified Angus beef program, uh, partly because they're, they, they only involved a select grade and the lower third of choice for their branded program. More recently, they have advanced and they've made genetic improvements so that they can now have a premium product upper two thirds of choice, okay? So we're seeing uh, those kinds of changes, you know, over the, the years. And uh, I think that's that's been very beneficial to the industry, you know? Uh, and I'm not sure if I'm fully answering your question or not, but uh, I would say that the meat packing industry, let's say harvesters of fed cattle and fed pigs and so on, I think they've been a little slower to change and adapt to technology uh, than you might say the more uh, uh, comminuted sausage production systems and other, other kinds of meat products and so on. And I, I'll give you kind of example in, in the beef industry, there was a term that was used called uh, a, hot, a heat ring in beef carcasses after they were ribbed, okay? On the outer edge of the ribeye muscle, after it was ribbed, there was a dark coarse band there. And in extreme cases, that muscle would actually pull down a little bit from the surface, okay? They called it a heat ring, but it actually was a cold ring because what happened was it's typically occurred in carcasses that did not have very much fat cover or lightweight carcasses and the outer part of that muscle chilled too rapidly, okay? Which kept the pH too high and it actually stimulated a, a some, some level of muscle contraction. Now, over the next 24 hours or so, usually, unless in extreme cases, that would go away. And so the industry called it a heat ring, when in actuality, it was a cold ring, <laughs> you know? And so uh, the, the packing industry, uh, processors of cattle and pig, I think have been a little slow to really dig into the technology and what's going on biochemically, biologically, etc. You know, a little break. Since 1883, Ultrasource has been a trusted supplier to the food industry. Ultrasource provides superior kill floor, processing, packaging, and labeling equipment and operational supplies. Would you please tell us about uh, your role in the Cimental uh, Association that, that you are part of? What is somebody's role in that? How long have you been part of that association, if, if you will? Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to tell you about that because I, I enjoy my involvement there. Uh, I started out, we, we just, we had 20 acres to start with when Erling and I were married and built a house out here. And we started out with four Simmental cows. And over time, 
we kept increasing our herd some and acquiring some rented pasture. And after a period of time, uh, I bought a pasture and we kept expanding. And uh, then I was elected to the American Cemetery Association Board of Directors. And I served six years uh, there on the Board of Directors, okay? And I feel like I had a, a contribution there because for one thing, <clears throat> the a lot of breeders would just, they'd just register their better cattle. And the, the poorer cattle that they had, they wouldn't register them, see? Well, we didn't have information on those. So uh, when I was chairman of the Breed Improvement Committee, we, uh, we pushed through and called it total herd enrollment, okay? And not, not every breeder has to do that, but what it did was shift a lot of good breeders over to, they would enter the data, on all of their calves, even their cow herd, you know. So then you can compare the good ones with the bad ones and so on. <clears throat> okay. And uh, so that's that's one thing I feel like I, I accomplished. And uh, then we started a program in which we recognized breeders who submitted all of the data, see. And then those each year are listed and recognized in the Semental magazine as performance advocates. So I think that's a couple things that uh, I contributed. I'm now a part-time fieldman for the American Cemetery Association and attend, oh, six to eight or so sales each year representing the breed. But that uh, leads me into another thing that I think uh, uh, we made kind of a significant contribution between uh, John Pollock who was at Cornell University at the time, who was an animal breeder, and myself. And we obtained funding through the National Cattlemen's Beef Association to try to get a genetic evaluation of tenderness, okay? So uh, there were 14 breed associations that agreed to submit progeny for this project. And we evaluated about uh, 7,200 cattle over a three-year period uh, for, of course, carcass traits, but also we did Warner Breast or Sure Force on all of them. And we did a uh, century panel evaluation on about uh, a little bit, about close to a third of them, okay? And from that, we developed uh, breeding values, okay, for tenderness. That's never been done before. And, and, of course, the industry now uses the term expected progeny differences, okay? But that's basically the same thing as breeding values. So now a cemetery breeder can look at all of the data and the expected progeny differences on their cattle, whether it be birth weight or calving ease or yearling weight or marbling, whatever, but they also can see the differences in tenderness based on the expected progeny differences for uh, one or breast or sure force. And it was found that the heritability, the heritability of tenderness uh, for, for one or breast or sure force was about 0 0.40. See, that's a pretty good heritability estimate. That means you account for about 40% of the variation in tenderness. And uh, the, for uh, sensory panel evaluation, it was almost as good as the heritability is 0.37. And so I think this was also a very a significant project 
the first one to develop expected progeny differences for tenderness. That's okay. that's that's amazing. I think you have you have just just told us a lot about about your work. I think I have a, just one question for you. You you mentioned that genetics uh, uh, with with USDA that project that you you collaborated with. You mentioned that work with uh, with your grad student to determine that calipestatin and the high activity of calipestatin in Bosnia indicus cattle. But out of all your years, what has been the research that you enjoyed the most? I mean, you you. I mean, I don't know. That's off the top of your head. Do you recall like, oh, this research, I just, I wish I could do it again. Well, I, I think maybe this last study that I talked about, the genetics for tenderness was the one I really enjoyed. And, uh, you know, there was even a, a, a small article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Wow. One time about this project. <laughs> and then I enjoyed being involved with the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center for those 18 years on their germplasm evaluation and the, the germplasm utilization projects, because I think that's set a standard. Because see, at this at the time that I, I agreed and I started on the faculty in 1970, at that time, see, new breeds of cattle were just being brought into this country. You know. Only a year or two prior to that, Simmental, Gelby, Limousin, uh, South Devon, a little bit later, Main Anjou, Kianina, and so on. And so, you know, we had all these new cattle being brought into the country, but we didn't know much about their performance, at least in our U.S. production systems. And uh, so I think that was, a, you know, a really a, a landmine, landmark study not that i designed the study but i got to be involved with it you know and then you. you know and then working with a lot of good graduate students over the years was was a great experience and uh very rewarding you know and i see i see a lot of those graduate students at reciprocal meet conferences and some other conferences each year you know almost wrapping up this conversation with you I have two additional questions for you. Okay. Uh, what would you say to young meat scientists either are about to graduate from grad school or maybe also undergrads? What would be some of your recommendations for those young young meat scientists that you can tell them any 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 words of, of motivation or if they're going to faculty position, you're going to apply it for an industry job, what would be your recommendation for those? Okay, that's a ch challenging question. One, what I would probably say was that, uh, and this, of course, would depend quite a bit on the major professor, but whatever projects I, I was involved with, I always tried to include something about the, the, the basic or the fundamental biology or biochemistry and so on of what we were investigating, but that it had an application in the industry. And, and I'll go back to this example of Georgiana Whipple. You know, she did a lot of enzyme assays on those Bosindicus and Bostaris cattle, you know, the calpanes, the calpostatins, 
to try to find out what what was causing the difference. Okay, once that was known, and she was the first one, she and Muhammad Kamari at the Meat Animal Research Center were the first ones to determine this. Then the industry could then utilize that information and try to improve Brahmin or Boss Indicus cattle. Now, it, it, before you, you might say that it sounds like I'm very critical of Boss Indicus cattle. I, I fully appreciate that there are parts of the country where they're very important as far as being part of a breed composition. And of course, in our country, we have uh, the primary Boss Indicus breed to be uh, Brangus. You know, I mean, there, there are Brayfords and there are uh, Bramazines and there are Simbras and so on, but the, the Brangus would be the main one. You know, uh, to have purebred Boss Indicus cattle in the United States is not a really very good fit. Okay. But you asked me at one point about South America, and I've been in Brazil a couple of times. And I observed uh, some Bosindicus cattle and some dairy cattle. And they were having to treat those dairy cattle for very uh, uh, significant uh, uh, lice. Uh, uh, that's some other, uh, I'm, I'm not thinking of my turn. Anyway, the Bosindicus cattle were pretty much resistant to lice and grubs. And, and ticks is what I was trying to think and, and resistant to them, you know, whereas Bostaris cattle, they were in, if they were in a hot part of the country, they were, they were having some problems with, and that affected production, you know. I went, you know, then I think I went down, I told you I've been in Argentina a couple of times and it's interesting there because Argentina is kind of a long country and it goes quite a ways north and quite a ways south you know, and in part of the country, the closer part to the equator, they have to use some Bosindicus influence in their breeding. So they use a lot of uh, Brangus, primarily red Brangus, uh, Brayford, you know, is another one, so on. But in the other part of the country, where it's more of a colder climate, they primarily use uh, Pold Hereford, well, Hereford, and they're mostly Pold, but, and Angus and Shorthorn. And in their country, see, they don't really have a, a grading system. And for their domestic use, they harvest those cattle at really light weights. And so they, and they finish most of the cattle on grass. And so the Hereford, Angus, even the Brangus, so on, Brayford, they will, they will develop, develop a certain amount of fat at a fairly light weight. I'm talking about weights of uh, live weights of less than 800 pounds okay and so that's why those cattle work well you know for their domestic market they they will they produce their cattle to heavier weights and oftentimes will follow the grass finishing with some grain finishing so uh in south america you've got a pretty extreme uh range of climate and so bosindicus uh, Boss Indicus influence cattle are very important, critical in parts of the countries. Thank you a lot, Dr. Dagman, for your time again. This is such a pleasure uh, to have you on. I admire your work and thank you. Thank you a lot for taking the time and, and being with us today.
You're welcome. I might just want make one more comment. You know, uh, in our meat science program, when I was on the faculty, uh, we had a, a very strong program. And at one point, we actually had seven faculty involved in teaching, research, and extension. And then due to budget cuts and things like that, you know, obviously, you know that uh, that got trimmed back uh, quite a bit. But one of the, the positive things about our program was that we, we worked pretty well together. Uh, usually, when we started some kind of a project, there would be two or three or four of us involved in that project. You know, Dr. Hunt might be involved in uh, packaging and color determination, and Dr. Castor might be involved in hot boning and, and so on, and I would be involved in someone else, some parts, and then another faculty might take some other components. So one of my advices to graduate students that are looking maybe at a university position, look at the existing cooperation among the faculty that are there and their willingness to interact and work together. Okay, I think that's extremely important because it, it's hard for one person to do something all by themselves unless they're really super intelligent, you know, and uh, can get good grants and, and so forth. Yeah. Absolutely. I hope I hope that that this these words from you resonate with with other people, other young meat scientists. And and again, we, we thank you a lot for, for having the time. Hopefully we have a face to face RMC this year. I hope. I hope. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I, I've enjoyed visiting with you, Francisco. That we end this episode. Thank you a lot for listening. If you'd like to receive notifications on the new releases and the new episodes please subscribe at www.meatspath.com if you're a small and mid-sized meat processor and you have concerns or questions about a certain topic related to to meat science and meat processing please email us at info at thank you and see you the next time